Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I want to shift gears now, uh, if I can. I'm a little discombobulated right now. But I, I want to shift gears and move into giving the Word of God. And if you've been with us for a little bit, you'll know that we've started a series on marriage. And I, just at the onset of this message, I want to acknowledge that for some of you, you are not yet married, and some of this feels like it's not that relevant to you. But I promise you that there is relevance here. And even if you go all your days without getting married, because marriage is meant to point us to our relationship with Jesus Christ, there is something for you to learn regardless of your marital state. I also acknowledge that there are some of you who have come out of a marriage or are in the midst of a very difficult marriage today. You're trying to find light at the end of the tunnel, and the topic itself, its very mention, causes pain or concern for you. And I fully appreciate that it's not easy for you to hear these things. But even in your situation, I believe that the Word of God brings healing and it brings strength whenever it is proclaimed truthfully. And I want you to open your hearts to receive what you can from these words. I believe that regardless of your story regarding marriage, there is something in the word of God for you to hear this morning. I want to draw from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. And as you can see, the title of the message is Love and Respect. Let's read the text together here. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the Lord, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Men really like that section of scripture. Hang on, because here's the stuff that you may not like as much. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That's the word of God. Whether you like it or not, that is the word of God. And it is the only way by which you will come to discover true fulfillment in marriage. 
Marriage was God's design and his idea. It was not the invention of men. It is not the result of evolutionary biology. It is something God instituted. And as its inventor, he determines for us what makes a marriage thrive and what makes it die. We would do well to pay attention to what God says in his word because if we violate these principles, there is not a person in this room who can be the exception to these rules. That it is only by this path you will experience a full, rich, lifelong marriage. And I believe that is the design, that's the plan that God has for every person. This is a very rich text. The verses I've read could fill 20 sermons I'm not going to do justice to the theological framework of this text this morning, but instead, I'm going to outsource that task to Pastor Peter Cho, the newest pastor over at Emmanuel Community Church. On June 19th, he's going to come and wrap up this series by giving us another sermon on this same passage, but from a more theological perspective. Today, what I like to do is focus on verse 21 and verses 31 to 33, and really look at the practical dynamics of what love and respect look like in marriage. Now, if you happen to be married right now, and you're listening to these words, I want you to know that these words are for you. They're not for somebody else, and they're not for the person you're tempted to poke with your elbow, and go, hey, you better be awake, man. This is not for somebody else. If you're married, these words are for you. And I believe what God wants you to do even if you've never done it before, is to humble yourself and receive his word with authority because his plan for you is to make your marriage much more fulfilling and life-giving as you open yourself up to these words. I want to I walk through quickly a few um, foundational ideas and then look at this love and respect thing. And the first is this principle of mutual submission. The passage begins with these words, submit to one another. And I think in the church today, we've seen a real distortion of this idea that the man is the head of the house, that he's the spiritual leader. And we've given this impression that the only thing that counts is wives submitting to their husbands. But this passage begins with a very important word that in every human relationship, the most important thing is not one person submitting to another, but it is all people submitting to one another because of the authority and the high regard we hold for Jesus Christ. In other words, what makes a marriage healthy is not that a man is a big shot and the woman follows him wearing her kimono 10 paces behind with her eyes downcast. That's not what makes a marriage healthy, is that the man is a strong leader and the woman knows how to follow. What makes a marriage healthy is that both people love Jesus Christ. Both people have the ability to be corrected and led and governed by him so that out of respect for him, They make room for one another. That doesn't mean that the man has no leadership role in the family, but what it means is that for a marriage to be really healthy, both people must submit to one another, be willing to put each other first. Marriage is not meant to be a wrestling match trying to struggle for the priority place, the first place in the relationship. It is a lifelong journey of yielding to somebody else to say that the reason I'm in this relationship is to support and bless and honor you. I'm not in it to see what I can get out of it. I'm in it to pour myself out 
for your sake. And if you don't see a generosity of spirit and a selflessness in your marriage, that is already the seeds of its own destruction. If you're not yet married, let me tell you right now, when you're trying to find a mate, don't look for a cute smile, nice hair, a six-pack abs. All that stuff will fade away. I used to have a six-pack. You know what I got now, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, everything you think is flashy and cute and attractive turns into this. But the one thing that doesn't go away is a heart that has learned out of reverence for Christ to make room for somebody else. If you're a selfish person, then your mate is shriveling next to you. I can promise you that. And so the key to marriage is selflessness. And I believe every marriage starts out with two people eager to please one another, to honor one another. But over time, life takes over and it gets harder and harder to want to put that other person first. After a while, you're like, I get to come first once in a while. You stink. And it's challenging to want to honor and submit to your mate And that's when in those days of low motivation, having a high regard for Jesus will save the day. You won't always want to build a good marriage because you like your mate, but it is your honoring of Jesus that will secure the health of your marriage. I also want to point some some, uh, emphasis on verse 31 Because what verse 31 tells us is, in fact, it's not a new verse. It's actually quoting Genesis 2.24. Paul and Jesus, who are the primary teachers in the New Testament, who help us understand what the Christian faith is, surprisingly, they didn't teach very much on the subject of marriage. But when they did teach on the subject, they both built their teaching around this same verse from the Old Testament. Genesis 2.24. And what it says, among other things, is that in marriage, two people are so profoundly joined together that most people aren't really prepared for how together married people are supposed to be. The truth is that most people think of marriage as some kind of contract, as though it is an agreement or an alliance between partners. But in fact, marriage, according to Scripture, is more like a fusion. It's an imperfect analogy, but it's helpful to think in terms of Siamese twins. You guys know what Siamese twins are, right? They're physically joined together. Often they share organ systems so that when you're a Siamese twin, there is no longer just you and me. Everything is we because nothing can happen to my Siamese twin that doesn't ultimately affect me. If a Siamese twin gets hit by a car, you don't say, hey, you got hit by a car, man. We both got hit by a car just now. In other words, everything that affects one, by definition, will affect the other. Married people don't say, oh, you just got fired? (laughs) I feel bad for you. You don't just move on with your life. When your mate gets fired, we got fired. When your mate gets sick, We got sick because marriage is such a profound fusion of two people and it's not something that is meant to be dissolvable. It is something that whatever else happens, it is not within your authority to threaten or to walk away from it. You didn't start it by your own authority and you don't get to walk away from it by your own authority. 
That's just the biblical teaching. That doesn't mean people don't do it or that people don't feel compelled to do it. I understand there are extenuating circumstances. But I want you to know the general plan of God is this, that marriage is a once-for-all-time covenant sealed by his authority and meant to be forever, and that it fuses two people into one person such a profound unity that even though they disagree about what direction they want to go, at the end of the day, they can only go in one direction. You can't move in separate directions when you're bound as two people who have become one. Paul further goes on to say that this is a profound mystery, meaning that marriage isn't just meant for the happiness and fulfillment of two people, but it is meant to be a living illustration of the relationship that we have with Christ. How, despite the drama of our betraying Jesus and then returning to him, isn't that the pattern of our lives? We betray him and then we return to him. And we betray him and we return to him. Without that ability to return, there would be no relationship. And the mystery, the profound mystery of marriage is that against all odds and against all logic, Jesus holds on to us no matter what we do because he has promised to do that. That's the sacredness of a marriage covenant. We're not saying, I will hold on to you as long as you smell good, but I will hold on to you until I die because I've promised in the Lord to do that. If that means I die with you, that's exactly what the cost is. I am not entering into this lightly. Pastor Peter Cho will unpack that idea a lot more, so I'm just going to move on. And I want to move into the more practical side of this. What you'll notice in the structure of this passage is that God gives one command to each spouse in a marriage. That doesn't mean only one thing is expected of us, but what it means is this is the big thing you need to remember as a husband or as a wife. And he says, each one of you, speaking to husbands, must love his wife as he loves himself. And then to the wife, he says, you must respect your husband. So he gives one command, and here's what I believe we're supposed to understand about this. God is at work in each person's life. And his desire for every human being is that they will grow, they will be joyful, they will feel alive, they will be blessed and supported. God's plan for every person is that they would have a great and fruitful life. And he uses various things like friends and parents and the church, but one of the primary things he intends to use in a human being's life is the person they marry. In the work that God is doing in our lives, one of the greatest instruments available to him is the person you marry. That is a primary instrument by which God loves you. What that means is that God is trying desperately to love me, and Jeannie is one of the primary ways in which he is attempting to do that in my life. And then I also for her. And what this tells us is as God is raising up a whole other human being to take care of me, it's showing that he's trying to meet some fundamental need in my heart as a human being. That I have this driving need, and because God loves me, he doesn't want to leave me in a place of need. He wants me to feel feel fulfilled, to receive that need and, and have it be met. And he's using my spouse to do that. 
And because marriage is a true partnership, a union, whatever I'm commanded to do, my partner is commanded also to help me to do. Right? And in the same way, whatever she's commanded to do, I'm also commanded to help her do that for me. So there is this idea that when one person is commanded to do something, by definition, the other person is commanded to help out. Does that make sense to you? We'll unpack that a little bit more here. And so he gives these, these commands, love and respect, and pardon the stereotype, but just for the purposes of clarity, I'm going to use the pink for the, the ladies and the blue for the men. Is that okay? Don't call me a sexist. I just show a million kids pink and they say girl. Okay, so it's, it's, there it is. On the left side, you have the wife. On the right side, you have the husband. And he gives one command to each. And I want to first deal with husbands. Love your wives. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Now, that doesn't mean wives, uh, husbands don't need love too. We all need love. But of all the things you can focus on, what he says is you are to pay very close attention to the love that you show your wife. And as he gives this one command, I believe what it points out is that the woman in her heart has a deep existential need which God is attempting to help fill through her husband. And I believe that deep need is security. Now, this, again, is a generalization. There are marriages I've come across where the husband is more oriented around security than the wife. But for, for whatever, in your own marriage, you figure out which one of you is the pink and which one of you is the blue. In my marriage, I'm not always sure either. <laughs> okay? And what he says is, husbands, don't love your wife in the way of like just buying her flowers every couple of weeks and going, yeah, I, I loved you, I bought you flowers, that should work. Not some mindless, lazy way, but he says, love your wife in a way that builds up her sense of inner security. A, a comedian once quipped that he believes women want security more than anything else because that's what they're always screaming when he approaches them at the club. <laughs> some of you get that on the drive home. <laughs> security! Listen, <laughs> somebody just got it. All right, great. <laughs> it says, husbands, love your wives in such a way that it's not just that you're satisfied. Like, what? I loved you. I bring home money. I mow the lawn, whatever. It's not about you being satisfied that you did a good job loving. It's about her needs being met. And if, if the great need is security then one of the ways we love our wives is to make them feel safe. That means that we present to them a love that is not going anywhere. Then never once, even in anger, do we suggest or hint that this is over, that I'm leaving, that I'm done with this. The permanence of our commitment to our wives is one of the primary ways that we breed security in marriage. And the minute, even in pain or anger, you say things like, that's it, I'm done. I'm leaving. That, those are words you can't unsay. And they are devastating in their effect on the human heart. Husbands, love your wives in a way that protects and honors their sense of safety. That they know that what you're saying to them is, I'm right here and I am not going anywhere. It also means that we love our wives in a specific way. We don't say, hey, you're like the best girl I could get. You'll do. 
I'm a six, you're like a five, we are a good match. That's not what we say in marriage. What we say is there, there are three and a half billion women on this planet, but the only one I see is you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you don't feel that way, you've got to pray to God that he will restore that heart to you. That you don't just look at your wife and say, well, I guess you're the one I got. Let's make do. What you say to her is not that she is a woman, but that she is my woman. She needs to feel that specificity. I've often joked in premarital counseling when I cover this passage that you know when you see a lion in those nature videos in the African savanna and it's hunting and all of a sudden it sees the one zebra out of a thousand zebras, he sees the one he's gonna, and he's like this. And you know, he gets down on his haunches and he's focused, he's locked in and there are a thousand zebras moving around with black and white stripes but he doesn't care about all of them. He already marked the one he's going to get. That's the heart of marriage. That I saw you and it's like the eyes in my heart were blinded for all others. It's just you that I see. It's only you that I want. I think that's the kind of love that we all yearn for. It's the kind of love that is commanded in marriage. Husbands, you're commanded to love your wives this way regardless of how they behave. That's the hard part about all of this, is that we are called to love our wives as a matter of obedience to Christ directly, not as a response to how our wife is acting. And I know that's challenging because sometimes people don't act so lovable. It's hard to hug a porcupine. There's not really a safe way to do it. (laughs) And sometimes that's what marriage feels like. It's like, I'm trying, but every time I just, it hurts. And so the corollary command, the one implied here is, wives, please work hard at being lovable. Forget about this part of the equation. It's like, you better love me. Please help me. You're so hard to love. Please just help me a little bit. And here's what, among other things, I'm not saying, you know, um, do your hair and try to act cute. It's not that simple or shallow. Here's what I think it really means to be lovable. Here's at least one concrete way to understand it. Men are hardwired with one of two instincts that awaken in us beyond our control. One of those instincts is the protector, and the other is the warrior. Okay? Now, you could debate this with me, and that's valid, but just I'm the one preaching, so be quiet. Listen. <laughs> there are two instincts in the heart of a man. There is the protector or rescuer, and then there is the fighter or warrior. And depending on what you do to him, you will awaken one of those two responses. So when a man is attacked, without even trying, the fighter or warrior instinct just wakes up. I, in fact, take advantage of this. When I'm on a long drive and I'm getting sleepy, I slap myself. Why? Because I get so angry, it wakes me up. That's how instinctive it is to get upset and feel like fighting when somebody hits you. That is hardwired into men. You, you want to you prove this? Just find some guy that you're friends with and slap him in the face and watch his eyes closely. Just for a second, there will be a flash of real anger before he realizes who you are and doesn't kill you. So when you attack a man, 
What you awaken is the fighter inside. And he wants to hurt back. That's just natural. But there's also another instinct in a man that unless he's a completely messed up sociopath, when he sees somebody in need or in distress, the natural instinct of a man is to protect or to rescue. So that when a man, a healthy, normal man, sees someone crying and in pain, it's hard for a real man to just walk by and go, whatever, it's not my business. A real man pauses and goes, are you okay? Can I help you with something? It's a natural, hardwired, God-oriented response that when we see distress and pain, we long to do something about it. That's just the heart of men. So depending on which response you give, you will get a different response back from man. That's not to say that we have no capacity for morality or nobility. We should control ourselves. But I'm saying that these are sort of precognitive lizard brain responses hardwired into men. Some of you look like you don't believe me, but trust me, these are very common responses. I see it all the time in marriage counseling. So here's advice to women. If you, want to, if you want to receive love that makes you feel secure, one of the ways to be lovable is to invite that love in, to ask for it. That when you're feeling insecure and unloved, don't express it as anger and annoyance, but express it as need and sadness and vulnerability. What I mean by that is, sometimes I feel like when I'm listening to couples, that for some women, the only emotion they know is anger. I'm hungry. That makes me angry. I'm tired. So I'm angry. I'm worried. So I'm angry. I'm sad. So I'm angry. And it's like you only have one emotional component, and that's everything translates into anger. That's natural and understandable, but it's not productive. Because when you express things as anger, you awaken the wrong instinct in your partner. And so the rule of thumb I have is when you're, this is like elementary school, when you're sad, be sad, don't be mad. (laughs) Simple, right? When you're sad, be sad, don't be mad. Now, I, I know that pride gets in the way. It's hard to make the risk of being vulnerable, of saying, I, I'm feeling really exposed here. I'm feeling left out alone. And I'm telling you, you have the power to change that. Will you love me better? That's humbling. It's not an easy thing to say or to do. But I want to assure you that when you're really feeling vulnerable and alone and insecure, the best move you can make is to be honest about that. To say, what I need from you is not repentance, remorse, and a bouquet of flowers. I need some love from you. And you're the only one I really want that love from. Will you please give it to me? If you've been through premarital counseling with me, there's like another hour of stuff we can work on from just that part of it, but I'm going to move on. And I want to look at what wives are commanded to give to their husbands. It says, wives... Respect your husband. Again, God is using one partner to meet a deep need in the other partner. So what is the need that the command to respect is feeding into? I believe that one of the deepest needs in men is the need to feel significant. The need to feel significant. See, men, for example, hate playing sports without an audience. It's not the same. If you do an amazing play and nobody saw, it's just not as good, is it? You like cross a guy over, break his ankles, and you dunk the ball 
and it's just the two of you. <laughs> like, dang, why couldn't there be a thousand people in the stands watching that? Why couldn't someone have recorded it? Because for men, there is this deep need to feel significant. You don't often see women do this move. Right? Yeah, I made that casserole. Better recognize. You don't see women do that. It's just not really a big part of being feminine. But for men, it's like we don't just find satisfaction in doing something, but in knowing that everybody else knew we did it. Right? So women want a beautiful house. Men want to light up the outside of their house with floodlights. Go, yeah, when you drive by, you'll know that's my house. You see it even at night from outer space. You'll see it because that's my house. When I bought my first house in Atlanta, I came home from school every day and I walked my, my kingdom. I just walked the yard like this. I felt so old school. But I'm like, this is my earth, my tree, my bush. <laughs> I don't know why it meant so much to me to own land and to own a building, but there's something in the heart of a man that needs to feel significant. On the redemptive side, that's a good thing because it drives men to attempt great things for God. It works against stagnancy and laziness. But on the other side, it produces a host of other problems, doesn't it? And yet that is hardwired into men. Now, when he says, wives, respect your husbands, that doesn't mean pretend that everything he does is great. More than half the things your man will do are stupid. <laughs> Women, can I get an amen in public? Don't, don't just whisper it behind his back. Here's your chance in public. Half the things your man will do are not worthy of respect. It just That's sometimes the way it is, okay? I have done so many, so many stupid things after marrying Jeannie. And I think one of the reasons we have a good marriage is that she doesn't shame me when I'm shameful. See, when I do bad things, nobody needs to tell me I've been an idiot. I, I know. Trust me. I know when I've done something stupid. And what I love about my wife is that she respects me even when I'm not worthy of respect. And here's what I believe that means. It's acknowledging, yeah, boy, that was bad. (laughs) What you did was the opposite of wise. It made us all in danger. And let's never do that again. But it also says, if anyone's going to get us out of this mess, I'm betting on you. Please get your act together because we're together on this. You're leading us. I'm following you. Please do better. I believe in you. It's not to lie and pretend that everything he does is good, but when you start to emasculate a man, pick at his masculinity, you start to cut him down to size, you're not actually going to get the response you're looking for. I guess what I'm trying to say is when you insult a man's manliness, it doesn't produce a better man. And so what I believe he's saying is, if you want your man to rise up and be a man, take care of his sense of dignity and his sense of significance. Here's a practical example of how to respect a man, okay? Among other things, here's one example. For a lot of men, their careers start to rise sharply at the very same time that their marriage starts to get a little familiar and their children start to get a little older. 
That's the tricky part, is at the same time that my kids need more guidance and time from me, at the same time that my marriage needs more attention, my business is taken off like crazy. And so a man has to make a very difficult choice. Which one of these things will I feed? Which one of these things will be more important to me? I just talked to a man who has been a friend of mine for a long time, and he's having a a bit of a rough time with his teenage son. And he said, I'm looking back now on those years when he was really becoming a teenager and in need of me, and I realized I was gone like more than 60% of the year. I was traveling for work. I was constantly on the move. And, you know, through those years, I made it to a lot of soccer games, We talked on and off, but I wasn't really present in his life, and now I'm starting to see it. And he's starting to really regret that in those years where both things were taken off, he put all his investment into the one thing and took it away from the other. For a lot of men, at that important point in their lives, they will make an immensely difficult choice to honor the role as father and husband above the role as businessman or professional. And I want to tell you that for men, that is no small thing. Because men, we find our worth in what we do and what we achieve and what we accomplish and what we acquire. That's how we measure ourselves so much of the time. When a man's business is failing, he's failing. And when his business is growing, he's growing. We equate ourselves with our work. So when a man walks away from something he could have gained in order to pour more into the people he loves, that is, a, that is a decision worthy of respect. And one of the ways that a wife will respect her husband in that is to say, well, finally, it's about time, duh. That's not the right way. It's to say, I know how difficult that was for you. And I want to express gratitude that when you could have made another choice, you made the right choice for us. And years later, we're going to look back at our family and realize you chose well. And I want to honor you, husband, for making that choice for us. A lot of men have chosen one career over another because it's better taking care of their family. And so for a wife to respect her husband is to acknowledge and protect his need for significance and to make sure that she sees that. Obviously then, husbands are called to be respectable. You can't act like a bonehead and demand respect. See, wives are commanded by God to respect their husbands, but very often husbands don't behave in a way as to engender that respect. She's bound covenantally to respect you one way or the other, but imagine how much better a household it would be if the choices you made produce genuine respect in her heart. Respect isn't something that can be commanded of somebody. It must be earned for it to be genuine. And let me just put it this way. One of the ways, I'm not just saying be perfect. What I'm saying is this. One way to be respectable is to pay attention to your wife's response to you. When a man senses that his wife is disappointed or discouraged by him, often our first response is to be defensive and to attack back. To say, well, hey, you're not perfect. I don't see you doing this or that. But really, 
to be respectable is this. When I sense that my wife is starting to roll her eyes a little bit, is starting to mumble some words under her breath, and I could tell she's not happy with me, rather than jumping to a response of defensiveness and fighting, I want to encourage us men to pause for a minute and think about what she's revealing. Because wives can be wrong, but very often they're right. They know their husbands better than any other person knows them. And when your wife is starting to say some things that are negative about you, a wise man will listen because that is the primary voice God will use to show you what you look like. Your wife will tell you the truth most of the time. And it's because of this. She stood at an altar and promised you the rest of her life. She doesn't have some devious plan to hurt you and disrespect you. She started out your marriage wanting badly to respect you. And when she finds it difficult to respect you, you got to pay attention to what that reveals, what that exposes about you. It's telling some form of the truth. So that a wise and godly man, in response to his wife's disappointment, to his wife's complaining, will say, why is this happening? Why are you looking at me like this? What element of my character and faith needs work. Because clearly you're not trying just to undermine me. You're in distress right now because of me. Your heart is troubled because of me and you finally had the courage to say something. You took that risk. Why would I punish her for taking the risk and telling me something I need to see? That doesn't mean your wife is right 100% of the time. But can I tell you, she's probably right 95% of the time. That she is the most reliable mirror held up to you to say, man, look at what your wife sees when she looks at you and understand how important it is to see that. I have grown more because of Jeannie than because of anybody else in my life. She points out things to me in the quiet of our room that I deeply need to see. And I don't know if there are a lot of other people who could point those things out to me. She sees me behind closed doors and in private, and I have come to really trust her assessment of my heart and my faith and my character. That doesn't mean I like it. Once in a while, it's like, you know, Dave, I feel like you're just not prayerful enough. I'm like, woman, senior pastor of a church, whatever. You tell me I'm not prayerful. I pray. I pray at least three times a day before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But you understand that when she says that, what she's saying is somehow as I observe your ministry, I see a lot of you, but I don't see as much dependence on the Holy Spirit. You're a good talker, but I don't know if you're bowing before God, inviting his power. You're doing it on your strength. Who but she could see that so accurately? And I've come to really respect and pay attention to my wife's disappointments and the disturbance of her heart. Now, having said all this, let me bring this to a close this way. Okay, I'm going to take another two minutes. The most faithful and diligent husband and wife cannot fill your deep need for significance and security. No matter how hard they work or for how many years, the deepest needs we have for security and significance cannot come from this person sitting next to us. God will use them to top off the tank, to remind us what he wants for us. But at the end of the day, God himself must pour into you. If you think of that beaker as the tank that you have, the need for security and significance, 
God must fill 99%. Your spouse will top off the tank. There you go. We're being used by God, but we cannot replace God. That is why the greatest way to strengthen your marriage is not to look at each other, but to look upwards to Christ. When two people love Jesus independently, and they come together to love him together, that's going to be a strong marriage. Because the authority of Jesus will break every tie. He will referee every fight. He will be able to say to one or the other, no, you are wrong on this one, and they are right. Who but Jesus could do that over the course of our lives? The greatest way to strengthen your marriage if you're a Christian is to walk more earnestly with Jesus Christ. You can come talk to me. We can talk about some practical ways to strengthen your marriage, how to get along better with your mate. But if you're not walking with Jesus, there's very little for us to build on. And so I want to encourage you, don't look at the person sitting next to you and say, make me feel secure. They can't. That person can't make you feel secure apart from Christ. And don't say to a person, make me feel significant. I want to feel like I mattered, that I showed up on this earth. You can't ask another person to make you feel like that. We have to be first secure in the love of God. We have to be significant in the calling of God, or else we will curse another human being with trying to replace God in our lives, and they won't be able to do it. If you're distressed that your mate is not loving you or respecting you enough, that's a real issue, and we've got to work at it. But I want to tell you the first place I would really encourage you to go today is to go before Jesus directly and say, why do I feel so distressed that my wife doesn't respect me or my husband doesn't love me? Could it be because when they stop loving me and when they stop respecting me, I don't feel loved or respected at all by anyone? I just feel empty and dead. That is not something your spouse can fix. That is something only Jesus can fix. And remember that if we're not getting it from Christ and we're not getting it from our mate, the world has no shortage of poor substitutes to fill your your tank. And your wandering, hungry heart will start looking somewhere else to be filled. Our hearts don't like to stay empty. And if Christ is not filling your heart and your mate is not filling your heart, you will wander and venture out looking for something that will. So I want to encourage you today as you think about marriage, past, present, future, to remember this. The greatest source of strength for any marriage is not a man and a woman loving each other, but it is a man and a woman loving Jesus Christ and then loving each other. And if your marriage is in trouble, go to Jesus first your heart is in trouble, go to Jesus first. Don't berate your mate, but talk to Jesus first. I believe he has what you're really yearning for, and he's got to fill you first before you go to your mate to fill your heart. I want to invite you just to bow with me for a moment. I want to pray for us as the praise team comes back up to close out our service. You know, a lot was said, but there are a few things I hope you will walk away remembering And one is that for marriage to work, two people have to be obsessed with blessing each other and not just blessing themselves. Selfishness 
and marriage cannot mix. And if you find that your thoughts most often revolve around how you feel and what you want and what you need, and rarely about what your mate needs, it's probably a signal to you that God wants to reset your heart a little bit. God wants to use one person as a primary instrument to love another person. What a privilege. What an awesome responsibility. If you're married, remember this. When God wants to love your spouse, he will most often use you to do it. So wherever this leaves you, I want to encourage you to make some renewed commitments in your heart to Jesus, to the ones you love. Let's just take a minute to respond in our own voice. I'll pray for us and we'll sing. Let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that the only way for us to feel really secure and truly significant is to receive your love and to receive your calling over our lives. So I pray for every husband in this congregation that we will find our significance in your great purpose for our lives. No matter what we accomplish, the world will forget our names. But as we live for you, our lives will take on great meaning. So make us significant in the calling of Jesus Christ over us. I pray for each wife in this room that you would take care of their hearts and that you would fill that deep need for security, for love, by showing your great and boundless love to each woman in this room. Your love will be so much more satisfying and filling than the love of any man. And so I pray that you would lead each wife in this room first to you. And that as you show your love to them, their hearts will be filled. I pray that you will teach each couple in this church to have such a high regard for you that we will make room for one another. We will submit to each other. Rescue those marriages that are really struggling and strengthen every marriage in our church so that they will be a picture for all to see of the amazing relationship you have with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.